Welcome to Witchlit, a podcast where we talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, fiction author, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Today's guest is AJ Scudieri, a born nerd. AJ was excited that her birthday fell on the first day of school many years. As an adult, she continued on this geeky path, still loving school. She now holds psychology, neuroscience, and forensic degrees. AJ was that kid, the one the librarians held books for and waived the parental approval to check out books from the adult library. By the age of seven, AJ had read and loved Christine, Cujo, Carrie, the Amityville Horror, and a ton of other things she should never have gotten her hands on. It explains a lot. The author of 20 plus books and a USA Today bestseller, AJ has won 15 Best Suspense, Best Fiction of the Year awards. Her work is gritty and always walks the edge of reality. Welcome, AJ. Hello, thank you for having me on. I think this is a good time to also mention that you also write <laughs> under a different name. Do you want to tell us about that? So I also write under the name Savannah Cade, and that's my pen name for romance. Great. And I'm going to give one more piece of information to listeners is that AJ and I have known each other for a very long time. So this may be especially chatty. <laughs> <laughs> very long, very long, very long interview. Okay. So AJ, why write? I can't not write. The question was, if I'm writing anyway, why not publish? So I started when I was eight. And I wrote an 80 page novella that I thought was adult romantic suspense. Um, it was painful, but I've been writing ever since. I would produce 180 words on something and have the usual like, oh, look, a squirrel. But I just always assumed that one day I would be a published author. And then eventually I realized they needed to get off my butt and make that happen. So what did getting published look like for you? It was a fun and not fun road. Um, I knew when I finally decided that I was writing to get published, that I was going to need to be better. And I started really working on my craft. So I wrote one book just to know that I could finish because I'd not been finishing things. I was just writing for myself. And that one. Uh, that was a historical romance, which I chose because one, uh, it was never going, I knew it was never going to see the light of day and I don't know anything about history. So it's just about like, they may pull out their cell phones at some point, but I didn't worry about any of that. I just wanted to have a good plot and good characters and finish the book. And then I wrote another book, again, not my darling, uh, that I was going to make much more literary and really... Now that I knew I could finish and tell a good story and have good characters, I wanted the writing craft, you know, really well done sentences, characters, you know, one character was earth and one was sea and one was air. And I tried to be subtle about it. Um, and then I wrote the book I decided I was going to get published, which was this sci-fi suspense. And it was about the magnetic pole shifting. So I finished it. I started querying agents. Nobody wanted it. And 
they say if you can't get anybody with a query letter, you should go into the bookstore and look at the shelf where your book belongs. Read the backs of the books there, see what you're missing. And I realized what I was missing was male genitals. <laughs> so I stopped signing them Elena and started signing the query letters AJ. Uh, because I'm really bad with Excel sheets, I had saved one Excel sheet filled in with all the agents I had queried and I had saved the same one blank. So I pulled up the same one blank and requeried all the same agents with the exact same letter, only signed AJ and now 20% of them wanted it. Um, but my first offer of publication was uh, one company that really wanted the book, but they wanted me to get together two characters in my sci-fi apocalypse story so that they could market it as chick lit. And that led to an afternoon of crying on my kitchen floor because I knew I had to turn it down. Um, you have to have this understanding that your book is no longer your baby when you put it into someone else's hands, but you also have to have a line that you won't cross. And that had crossed my line. Um, I got picked up by a big New York agency and they started looking at my second book as well, but they moved so slowly that Honestly, looking back, they were probably on an absolutely normal pace. But at the time, with it being my first book, I wasn't sure what was going on. And I really thought the Earth's magnetic poles were going to swap before they got the book published, at which point it would be horribly out of date um, and not speculative fiction at all. You'd be back into writing and historical so, fiction. <laughs> right, it would have, <laughs> but still not romance. And uh yeah, so my sister and I decided that we were going to publish it ourselves, and really the rest is history. We pulled both books back from the agent and put them on the market. Awesome. Yeah, I, I know this story, and every time you tell the part about they wanted to make it chiclet, I just die a tiny bit inside. <sighs> I died a lot bit. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah. I can imagine. It's just so completely bizarre to me. Um. So yeah, so now you're like on book what between your two pen names? Close to 50. Yeah, close to 50. So clearly you made the right choice <laughs> on what to do next. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It is, and I wound up on a panel at one of the writing conferences and I was the only indie author on the panel. It was a number of years ago, but I was also the only one who didn't have an agent telling me which characters I couldn't couldn't kill and which book I would be writing next. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have, you have autonomy. Was, uh, such a huge affirmation. I just so what, killed someone the other day and I, I got to choose to do that all by myself. <laughs> so what does writing look like for you now? Do you still have a day job? Do you like introduce yourself as a writer first? I have recently started introducing myself as a writer first. I have the I, it's not a day job. It's an hour job. I, I literally work a handful of hours a week and it's handy because book money is definitely up and down. And this is money that I get paid exactly for the hours that I work. So like with the pandemic, I could pick up extra hours and it was so comforting and handy um, as the rest of the family's finances just decided to go insanely crazy. Um, but I, I'm writing the vast majority of the time of my work time. So what are your goals 
with your writing now? I mean, you, you're about to hit 50 books. You've become a USA Today bestseller. Like what, what's next on the horizon goal-wise? I want to get my other pen name on the USA Today list too. So the AJ Scuderi pen name hit, and I want to get the Savannah Cade pen name to hit. Um, and otherwise, I just, I want to get the books further. I want to get them in more hands. I want to have more readers. It's, it's been growing steadily and somewhat exponentially, but I want to be able to keep doing this. So it's interesting. One of my goals was to hit the USA Today list. Um, although I was, I have to admit, I was not like actively or passionately pursuing it. And I recently found out that I hit it, but I hit it almost a year and a half ago and I didn't know, which if you ask any of my friends will be like, oh, that's typical for her. Yes, um, as your friend. Yes, so, this is typical yeah. for AJ. This <laughs> <laughs> is totally typical me. Um, but yeah, I, I want to get the other pen name on it. And I, you know, I, I want to say I have these lofty goals. I just want each series to reach more readers and sell better than the one before. I mean, I think that's admirable and sounds also doable. So good, good goals, yeah. right? Your smart goals. It's not for that writing. lofty. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, they're, if you, yeah, if you had crazy. actually said like world domination, we'd probably have a different conversation, but I think, you know. Well, there's an element of world domination, but I feel like it's a little under the radar. Like your media empire but no, is on I, the horizon. Yeah. I don't. No, I don't need a media empire. I really like what I do. And I, I think something would have to come along to really change those goals. Yeah. So what does a perfect writing day look like for you? A perfect writing day starts the day above 60 degrees so that I can go for a walk in my neighborhood and dictate chapters. Um, that is not happening apparently again for the rest of this year. So I'm stuck in my house. Um, but I, I took up dictation a couple of years ago and I love it. So I'll dictate anywhere from two to five chapters in the morning and then just sit down and hit the chapters in chunk. They definitely need a rework from dictation. I am not the perfect dictator, not the right word. Um, <laughs> but they get a second round when I go over them. So I'm producing almost a second draft on the first run. And, and then at the end of the day, my husband and I will watch our favorite TV shows and I get a cookie. So it's pretty simple too. Yeah, no, that sounds pretty perfect. Do you have any rituals mm -hmm. around writing? I mean, obviously the walk, but like, I'm thinking any more like specific rituals like you have to have a certain sweater or like you know anything that really is like sets your brain this is writing time you know I don't have any rituals but I have to have conditions so I discovered a number of years ago that I my writing speed changes for the worse when it gets colder so I have a space heater under my desk so that's on or off depending depending on what the temperature is. I have my perfect office chair that I have found and I slouch like I'm attempting to write from bed, but it works for me. Um, and I write better on sunny days than gloomy days, which is always impressive to me. It just sets my brain differently. 
I wish I had a ritual where I could set that and make it happen. But all I can control is the space heater and the office chair. Well, I mean, that's a measure of control. I always think of that quote, I think from Leonard Cohen, that when people say where good songs come from, he's like, if I knew I'd go there more often, like, you know, it's just the (laughs) thing, you know, there's not necessarily, we don't know where it comes from. We just have these things that we do to try and make it happen, I guess. I think a lot of it's like baseball. You know, we always say baseball players are so suspicious and if they did one thing and they won the game, they'll do it again. And I think as writers, we're like that very much. Like this turned out a really good book. Let me go do the same things. And I think mostly we'll stumble on things that are actually helpful, but I suspect it's also mixed with some purely superstitious things at this point. Yeah. I mean, is it superstition if it works? I don't know. (laughs) It's still super. I just don't know which parts work and which parts don't. I can't distinguish them. Yeah. So obviously the name of the podcast is Witchlet. So we're here to talk about a couple of your series that fit into that thing. So let's start with the Nightshade series. And so what was the seed for Nightshade? And do you want to tell us a little bit about the series? So the series is, the Nightshade Division is a black ops division of the FBI. They employ FBI agents, so they're all trained FBI agents, who have unique psychic talents or abilities. Um, And they're given the cases that either have criminals or perpetrators or some element to them that relates to witchcraft, psychic skills, shifters, something like that, or the cases that nobody else can solve where their powers are going to be required in order to figure out what's going on with this case. Um, But the series came about because I've always loved this science of magic. And we had recently discovered ergot poisoning with the Salem witch trials. And if you look at ergot, it's I hope I'm saying that correctly. It basically causes all the symptoms that everybody has. It causes symptoms of feeling like you're being pinched or pecked. It gives you hallucinations of people floating around you. And the historians went back in the almanac and actually found the weather conditions were perfect and explained how it could have gotten mixed in with the rye. And so we have this wonderful scientific explanation for the Salem witch trials. We have explanations for vampirism. We have explanations for zombies. And the explanations for werewolves are horrible. They're like, oh, he was this unfortunately hairy individual. It's like, that doesn't explain the whole werewolf myth. And on top of that, I really hate werewolves in books and TVs. I'm so sorry to other writers, but I just, I hate TV werewolves where they, they jump and a 200 pound man becomes a 40 pound dog. And my poor husband has to deal with me screaming, conservation of mass at the TV over and over again. And then when they show back up and their clothing is folded under the tree, I'm like, where are the werewolf fairies who fold their clothes? And so I've always kind of disliked that presentation. And I spent a number of years trying to figure out a scientifically plausible werewolf. And once I did, (laughs) I, uh, I just started like the series kind of fell into place after that. I think I had I normally have a bunch of different pieces rolling around in my head. And when one final piece fits in, they all roll together like a big giant snowball. And that's where the story is like, okay, that's a book I can write now. 
And so that's how that series got started. It was literally out of a hatred for werewolves. There you go. But Donovan, the werewolf character in the book, is kind of a skeptic in a lot of ways and is partnered with someone who has different abilities. Do you want to talk about her, Ellery, in the book? So Ellery always considered herself to just have very good hunches uh, to the point where as an FBI agent, she found herself in enough situations that they started questioning her about her ability to, to always hone in on the right thing. As she winds up in a mental institution, of course, there's absolutely no dealing with her powers in there, more about just like getting her back on track. And while she's in there, she's recruited for the Nightshade Division. So the, the special agent in charge of Nightshade has his own abilities and he's constantly looking to see like who's closing too many cases and do they belong in my division? So she's, she is a former FBI agent who's brought in and Donovan's brought in for his first case. But as the stories progress, Ellery discovers that she didn't have really good hunches. She's actually a descendant of multiple lines of craft practitioners and different kinds of craft too. Yeah, I think as so she's, that she's definitely a bloodline witch. Yeah. Yeah. I think that as that unfolds in the stories, you the different threads you add. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about specifically the different lines in the book. And I don't want to be too spoilery because I really want people <laughs> to go read these books. But um how did you approach the research for that? Because you've got two different parts of the country where these where her family is from and and two very different kinds of practitioners. So what, how did you approach research for that? The Eastern side of Ellery's family, where she's descended from some of the Salem witches, um, that's more available. And I think that's something that had always kind of gravitated towards in researching things. And of course I have a bookshelf full of books of witchcraft and spells, which really hits more of that American witchcraft of, you know, the craft and witches. I actually know what I wanted to do and knowing that I seeded that her family was from the New Orleans area. I actually went down to New Orleans and went into a handful of the shops. Um, I had enough knowledge to have a decent idea of what I was looking for. And once I found it, I started asking the people running the shops and once they, um, a couple of them when they were like, oh, that's what you're doing. Let me show you the back room. And you know, here are, here are the books you need to read that will give you the history, but here's where we actually sell you know, these pieces. And this is what we do for the locals. So that was, that was amazingly wonderful to get that kind of hands-on experience with that and to hear from the sources themselves. Yeah. Did you, like in your research, did it like, I mean, I guess first question is, are you actually a practitioner yourself? Somewhat. Uh, I'm religiously a Unitarian, and I've definitely dabbled in all kinds of aspects of the craft all along. So I think practitioner's true, too strong of a word for what I am, but to say I'm not would also be too far the other direction. Yeah. Did you find that like the research impacted kind of like how you look at those things? 
I don't know. I do think, like, I think the research changes it, but I think it's more of a slow evolution. I've rarely come across anything that was like so, so stunning or so surprising that it made me feel differently about, you know, either where I had sent the books or sent myself. But it definitely, you know, the more I learned, it absorbs and it, I think it has, you know, more of a, a barge, slowly changing course. And so I think it's hard to pinpoint where those course changes came, but I, I'm confident that they've happened. Mm -hmm. So do you think like in the books, I guess this is kind of where, you know, your reality and your writing overlap. So in the books, like the explanation for Donovan and for werewolves in general is kind of this scientifically plausible thing. So is there a scientifically plausible explanation for Ellery and witchcraft and other practitioners, other practitioners as well. I think there has to be, I, I think we just haven't found it yet. Um, one of my favorite phrases is that magic is just science. We don't understand at one point, electricity was magic and, and now we understand it and we can harness it and we can use it. And I suspect what we're looking at is something that years from now, maybe decades, maybe a century or two, we'll figure out what it is and we'll be able to harness it better. It'll have, you maybe not, won't need a, a pot with herbs and a flame, but there will be a switch. I like that idea of a, a, a witchcraft think, switch in your house. That sounds pretty good. Wouldn't <laughs> like, that let's be just turn the wards I, on for your house. You don't need a, a you know, security system. Yeah, you can I just mean, flip that's a switch and your really wards would, are on. <laughs> that's what it would be though. I mean, if you think about like where electricity was, before we figured it out and harnessed it, like now we can calculate the electrons that are traveling in a current, but we do, we flip a switch. Whereas previously, like, how did you harness that? And I think, yeah, we will have, you know, a switch to put the wards on, on our house. And, you know, you'll have a little device that travels with your kids that has a, you know, a protection spell around them. And it'll, it'll probably be digital. I feel like you just like gave yourself a new plot money. I might have, I very well might have. Or somebody listening now has a new plot buddy too. Um, but I do yes, like that absolutely. idea. So were there like for research, I mean, I, I feel like I have, though I enjoy writing, a lot of the fun of writing is doing research. So like in addition to like traveling to New Orleans and stuff, is there stuff in your research that really just like grabbed you or like took you down your own rabbit hole or anything like that. And looking at these two very disparate kind of practices in the United States, I say disparate, but actually they overlap some too. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm a complete nerd as my intro said, and I love school. And so part of this werewolf development uh, came about when I was in a graduate forensics program we're studying bones and skeletons. And I don't, I don't come from an anthropology background the way most forensic scientists do, but I come from a bio background. So what happened there was I got introduced to some anthropologists who were willing to talk to me about like, what if bones did this and what might we find historically? And so getting into that kind of thing is amazing. And I, I like book research, actually really enjoy it, but I'm even more enamored of face-to-face -face human research with experts and traveling, like getting in somewhere and seeing it, it always changes things. So I think just like 
knowing that I was going to bring those two separate crafts together in one person, it made her a lot more open. Um, it gives her a lot more options for what she does. And a lot of it she does because she doesn't know she's doing it. So, you know, as a writer, that was handy. It made it easier to write her and to give her what she needed. Um, but as a researcher, it was just so much fun. And the, the more I find out, the more the series expands. So Garden of Bone, where Ellery and Donovan wind up in New Orleans looking at her family history, and that's all I'm going to say about that, um, <laughs> was actually supposed to be the third book in the series. But the more I researched and the more I learned, the more I realized there are the, these other stories that need to be told first. And so I had initially thought I had maybe a six book series on my hands. And I am currently writing book number 10 and will uh, at least go through book number 12. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of that's just research inspired. Like picking up one piece and going, oh no, this, this fits in your snowball in a different location than you thought eventually. Originally. It does. It does. Or this, the snowball got bigger while I wasn't looking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That, that it's, that's writer's life right there for you. Um, Pretty much. Yeah. So you started the nightshade series after you had already written the kind of witchcraft focus series as Savannah, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the, yeah, what was, was the, like the seed for that, the, the witchcraft series? I think there's a lot of paranormal romance out there and it's, it's so paranormal, it doesn't fit into reality. I learned later that what I was writing has a genre and it's called magical realism, but there's, there's generally not a shelf in the bookstore for it. I don't think there's even an Amazon category for it yet, but I always wondered what would it be like if you really had control of these powers, if they weren't random? I think a lot of us and probably a lot of the people listening to this may have gravitated toward this because we've had experiences that didn't have better explanations than something beyond what we already know scientifically. And so I had always wondered, what would it be like if you could harness that? If you really had the kind of witchcraft that we think about, like snap your fingers and make a flame kind of witchcraft, or you know, being able to cast a love spell and have it work. And I really thought about that and I wanted to write a romance novel with it, but I also wanted to look at it as like, what are the ramifications of that? Because in the real world, that cannot be easy. So that's where that series really came out of. And of course, again, it was one book and then it was three and then it was five <laughs> as, yeah. as goes the writing world. As goes the writing world. Yeah. I, I love in the witchcraft series that like, the setting of LA and kind of like the magical community in LA. And I know that you also lived in LA. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I liked that setting. I loved being in Hollywood when I was in Hollywood. Um, eventually I, I got a family and it wasn't the right place to be anymore. There's actually a magic shop down where Blessed Be is in the story. And I used to go in there all the time. And the guy who ran it was a serious practitioner and was wonderful. You would walk in and start gathering things and you'd be like, oh, it looks like you're doing a this. Let me show you over here. No, 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 you don't, you don't need to be buying that. He's like, if I don't already know you, you don't get to buy that. So he was very involved with his customers and so helpful. 
So the idea too, that like one of the biggest cities in the US could hide this was tempting, but these people aren't out rural where nobody sees them. They're, they're walking among us and, and trying to deal with, you know, all the non-believers around them. One of, one of my favorite scenes, it's in the second book, where the where Yasmin is trying to convince Luke that she's actually a witch and she hides her house from him and leaves him driving around the neighborhood trying to figure out where her house is. And that's that kind of snap your fingers magic that we wish was easier to achieve than it is. Yeah, I was going to ask you like the realism because I, I do think there's a lot of like the realistic existence of people who practice witchcraft or or pagan or you know, other things. And especially in that series and um, like where, like as a writer, like how do you decide like how far to push that, to keep that kind of element of realism to the book, like from your personal reality to like the fantasy of the book, like how do you make that decision about how far to push that out? I think I made the decision initially before I started even writing the first book that there had to be a limit on it. I think as a writer, I look a whole bunch of different places to learn lessons. And one of my favorite lessons is Superman movies. Everybody got Superman and every new director or new Superman movie to put their mark on it had to give Superman a new power. And I know there's gonna be some haters, but in my mind, the, the most recent Superman have been so powerful, they're completely unrelatable. They're not human anymore. And that was always what made Superman Superman was that he was relatable in a, in a very specific way. And so I wanted to be sure that there was definitively a limit on how far this power could go. But even within the limit, you know, unless I was writing 50 books, I would have plenty of room to work and create different stories. So I set that limit pretty early. And again, magical re realism, relatively tightly. There's no shifters in those books. There's no you know, the world's going to crack in half kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very personal fingertip kind of magic. And that was, that was part of, I think any world building that you do as a writer, you either wind up breaking your initial boundaries or sticking to them. And I'm definitely a stick to them kind of girl. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like, oh, suddenly everything is solved by magic kind of writing. No. Yeah. And, and if something came along that could solve things, it had to already, like it had to be functional within the realm that was already created. So I didn't, I don't want to, I didn't want to write monster of the week kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. but this, one of the this, and I think too, by, sorry, by setting the limits on the magic, the stories themselves are very human. Yes. I, I was going to say, actually, funnily enough, the comment I had was that one of the things I like about that series is that the, um, in all of your romance series, the characters kind of jump in and out of different series. So like mm -hmm. the fact that characters in this book show up in other books and characters in other books show up in this books from different series means that really like your entire romance universe has a magical element, even if it doesn't show up in the other books. And, and that's the point because the, all the witchcraft is supposed to be plausible. So if it really is plausible, then why wouldn't you interact with this person that maybe you don't realize is a witch, but we do because <laughs> we read the other series. Yeah. 
have so confess I have not read every single romance novel of yours but you oh, know this yes um, I have read all your AJ books yes <laughs> I haven't read all the romance novels um so are any point in the non-magic series do they interact with one of those magical characters and have a question about what just happened they actually it more tends to occur the other way although my characters do interact with the magical uh, characters and there was there's a brief moment where there's a dinner party where they're like wait how did she whip that up so fast but it doesn't it doesn't go much further than that it's really more of an easter egg for the readers who've been to the other series um more in the other direction in the nightshade books they interact with a character from another series who shows up and she's not magical at all but she completely wins the day so mm -hmm. yeah and you do have another series that is very like I would say um near future fiction mm -hmm. that spins off from nightshade that also doesn't really have magic in it but those characters originally appear in the series that does yes again it's supposed to be scientifically plausible magic and so if it truly is plausible then the characters can interact and Cage and Jewel, who are in the Black Carbon series you're referring to, came from the Camelot Gambit in the Nightshade series. And that particular um, case that they're on for that book is a very earthly case. It just requires their skills to solve it. So the townspeople, once they've, you know, figured out the murders, Ellery and Donovan leave town and, and no one is really any the wiser that there was a witch and a werewolf in their midst, mm -hmm. which allowed me to take Cage and Jewel off to a very non-magical world, although theirs is upside down. Yeah, it, upside down in a different way that doesn't have to do with magic. Unfortunately, it has a lot more to do with science. <laughs> yes, very, very dramatically different, but also very upside down. Nice. So like when you're, I guess, maybe think about like which pen name you want to answer this for, because I think the answers are probably <laughs> different or both. So what do you want readers to take away from the books that you write? Like, what do you, how do you see your relationship with them? Who do you think you're writing for? Like, do you have a responsibility to them as readers? Yeah, I absolutely have a responsibility to them as readers. And that's why I have two pen names. Um, so Victoria has read, as she said, the vast majority of my books and many of them as a beta reader. And when I first decided, to publish the romance, I had been writing it all along. I really needed a gear shift in between murdering people um, and staging massive criminal undertakings. And I hit a point where I'd written two or three suspense novels in a row, and I just couldn't remember had I killed somebody the same way in this previous book. You know, the, the stories weren't separate enough for me to be sure that I had separated the stories enough. And so I was writing romances in between. And when I gave it to Victoria to beta read, she was like, I just kept waiting for someone to die. <laughs> and so that really convinced me that the romances needed to be under a separate name because I absolutely do owe the readers. You know, a romance novel owes the readers a happy ever after and a suspense novel owes the readers twists and surprises and probably not a happy ever after, although at least some resolution and so because there are very different requirements of each genre, which I absolutely will hold to, um, it, it needed to be just, it was, they're so separate. I'm pretty convinced there's 
there's about five readers who read both of my pen names because they are so radically different. So I think for each reader, each, each pen name, I have a good idea of who I'm writing for. It took me a while to figure that out. Initially I was writing, these are the stories I want to tell. And as I've grown more and I know more of what, who my readers are and what they want. So I know, for example, that my AJ readers are very highly educated. They're not always formally educated, but they've, they built their own forge in their backyard or decided to take a trip to, you know, be a volunteer on some dig in Egypt because they're constantly looking for, you know, if there's something I want to do, how can I make it happen? Um, and they tend to be very nerdy, whereas my Savannah Cade readers tend to be um, more, I mean, they're definitely romance readers. They're looking for something different. They are very, um, they actually tend to be more formally educated than my AJ readers, which I thought was funny to find out. Uh, they're college educated women who are looking for realistic romance stories. So I, I don't tend to do billionaire or shifter romances or any of that. And they, they're looking for stories that to me are real enough that it's not just an escape. It's a chance to really believe in what humanity is capable of and that real love is out there. So I absolutely have different goals for each pen name and I absolutely am beholden to what I owe my readers. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I, like, I, I think about like, when I started reading your romance novels, like I really wasn't much of a romance reader before that because I had a hard time suspending my disbelief for like, you know, friends mm -hmm. to enemies kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Like I just, like if someone's a jerk, I don't need you to change and fall in love yeah. with them if they're still a jerk kind of stuff. Yes. So like, it was just hard for me sometimes to suspend my dis disbelief for romance novels. But that is one thing I do like about the romance that you write. It is very kind of, I mean, it is, there's still that, like, you, you know, there's going to be happily ever after because that's mm -hmm. the point of the genre, but it doesn't ever feel like slapped on at the end. <laughs> like these people <laughs> probably still hate each other, but they're going to get married anyway. You know, it never right. feels like that. So I, are they just, you know, like physically attracted, but they're going to get married anyway, even if they hate each other because the sex is good or whatever. So oh. I just appreciate that a lot. I had one where he showed up and proposed and I was like, honey, you need to say no. You haven't spoken to him in three weeks. You just had this massive fight that you haven't resolved. Like this is, this is not a happily ever after you're happy, but I am tremendously worried for you two as a couple. Yeah, exactly. So that's good. So, so have, I'm not writing those. Yeah, no. And I think that's good. Um, so what yeah, you said, you're working on book 10 for Nightshade. So what else is in the hopper right now for you? So there's Nightshade and Black Carbon, which are currently underway. Black Carbon is um, a much newer series. So book four is coming out in Black Carbon on probably end of February of next year. And that's as you said, it's, it's more science-y and it's being a science nerd, I call it peri-apocalyptic. Everybody else writes post-apocalyptic, but I put my characters in the middle of the apocalypse. Um, so it almost is even like they, I don't think they realize they're in the apocalypse as it is. Um, but so that series will get more. When I finish Nightshade, I will be starting a new series. And I have recently just 
it's wonderful because I've gotten a couple of like comments and uh, readers in my Facebook group who said, oh, but I love this character or whatever. And it, it started little pieces of snowflakes floating around in my brain that are rolling together to become a snowball. So I think I have a relatively good handle on what the next series will be. I do need to finish Nightshade first. I'm, I'm not allowed to write three series at a time. <laughs> well, at least not three series at a time with one pen name, right? I was going to say, because I'm actually writing four series at a time because I have two series going under each pen name. So yeah, I'm that not allowed like to a, start anymore. That seems like a good limit. That seems like a good, it is. Um, it's appropriate. And it also means the snowball will roll around for another year or so um, and will be really well formed. I, I think I usually want to have three, maybe four solid book ideas of where the series is going before I start it. Because, you know, like you said, you need to know where your world limits are and you need to know what boundaries you're going to have. And I love seeding things that the readers find way later. Yeah. So, which is why her books are also really good for rereads. <laughs> <laughs> I was really excited. I seeded something in book one that I actually didn't get back around to following up on until like book eight or nine. And I was like, it's here. Hey. Yeah. I find occasionally I do it without thinking about it and then mm -hmm. go back and go, oh, I left myself a seed. I didn't realize. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, the Vendetta trifecta is three books. And I wrote the first book and was convinced it was a standalone. And the readers kept telling me like, no, there's more here. There's more here. You have to write more. And I would kind of pat them on the hand and say, thank you. I love that you loved it so much, but no. And then I had to admit that my readers were right. And I wrote two more books because apparently I had seeded a whole bunch of things that I hadn't realized I had. Um, so I, yeah, I get that. It's some of it surprises me too. <laughs> adventures and writing always. So you mentioned your Facebook yeah. group. Where else can readers connect with you other than of course, buying your books, wherever books are sold. Yeah. Wherever books are sold. Um, my AJ website is readajs.com because no one can spell Scuderi. Uh, you can, I know you can now, um, <laughs> but it's, it's been a while. And then Savannah Cade is just at savannahcade.com and I'm on Amazon. AJ books are on all the retailers. Uh, Savannah has some books on all the retailers, but a lot of them in Kindle Unlimited. So Kindle Unlimited readers can just read through them. Snag those up there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Facebook groups. And Facebook groups. Yeah. Um, and newsletters. Because I'm a writer and doing one thing is not acceptable. <laughs> yes. And we will have links to all of that in the show notes and on, on our website too. So you can check that out. So you already know about this because you got advanced warning. But so the last question is a little bit of a game of chance. Okay. So I like to talk to things, talk about things we're not supposed to talk about in polite company because devil Scorpio, um, or I'm just a nosy writer, one or the other. So I'm going to roll a die. Oh, good. I was hoping there was a random way to choose. Yeah. There's a random way to choose. So looks of paper um, in a cup or what? Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to roll a die and depending on the number, um, one to five, we're going to talk about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. And if I roll a six, you get to pick which one your question comes from. It'll be a question related to that things and tangentially, at least related to writing. So kind of keep on topic. Tangentially, at least. So I'm going to roll my dice. So we got three religion. This is twice in a row. I've wound up with religion for people. <laughs> so 
you mentioned earlier that you consider yourself religiously a Unitarian and maybe a dabbler in magic. So have you had an experience in writing or research that has really like fundamentally questioned either one of those things? I don't think I have. I've had experiences that more confirmed it. Um, I find, like I said, I love human research and I love interviewing people, but I don't think anyone has quite like shaken me from that. I, I honestly think like the experiences I've had would like far more push me into, <laughs> and, and it's probably, probably that the experiences that I had younger shaped me this way and, and nothing quite as profound has come along to unshape that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Has there been, is there an example like of something that's happened that's really kind of underlined that for you that surprised you, I guess, maybe? The, like the, where, where it was formed or. I guess this idea that, you know, the magic, that magic is a possibility. Is there something specifically? Oh, absolutely. Um, One of my favorite stories, and you probably know this, uh, there was a pileup on I-75 in the fog. Uh, semi-jackknifed and 75 plus cars uh, crashed into it. Nobody could see in the fog. People died. People, you know, barely survived. Um, I was supposed to be on the road that time going home um, from a weekend at home back to college. And uh, this tells you, I'm sorry to everyone. uh, It was a wall mount phone that I picked up. (laughs) So I had decided we were supposed to leave at three and it was one. And I decided like, I think I just want to go back early. So, so my roommate and I were both from the same hometown and we were going to caravan back. So I picked up the phone to call her and say, Hey, do you want to go back early? And there was no dial tone. I was like, Oh, my phone's broken. And then this voice said, hello. And it was her. And I was like, that's the weirdest thing. I picked it up and there was no dial tone. She said, it didn't even ring that she dialed my number and it didn't ring. So we had called each other, or I picked up the phone at the exact moment she had finished dialing me. And she was calling me because she wanted to leave early. She, no, and I said, why? Because I had just had the same feeling and I couldn't explain why. And she said, no reason, I just have a feeling. We were 20 minutes ahead of the accident. If we had left two hours later, we most likely would have been in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so- this is where I say like magic is science we haven't seen yet. And so many of us have experiences like that. Yeah. I do think those like think, especially when they happen early in your life, it does kind of open you up to the possibility that there's just stuff we can't explain. I I feel like there has to be, I, what, who was it? Who was like, we should close the patent office because everything's been invented. It was what 200 years ago. Right. I, I think declaring that we actually understand how things work right now is about as ridiculous. Yeah. So. No. Well, great. Well, AJ, thank you so much for being on the podcast and chatting with me. And, you know, I guarantee that we will have you back later when another book comes out, just because you're now officially a friend of the pod. (laughs) Sweet. Yes. But thank you. And like I said, all the links to get in touch with AJ and buy her books and chat with her on social media will be in the box below. And thanks for listening.
Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Kaifel A. Agostini, who also designed our logo. You can find us online at witchlitpod.com and on Instagram and Twitter at witchlitpod. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy. Witchy.